1: The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya. I'm your host. Delighted to be here as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Mark the date. The Proton Calendar Beta is here. So we are big fans at the Ask Noah Show of Proton Mail and the company that behind it We have had Dr. Andy Yen on the program to talk about what his company is doing, and today marks the date where Proton Calendar Beta has finally arrived. So a calendar is more than just a tool. As they write on their site, it's a record of the moments that make up your life, your big meetings, your gatherings with friends, and children's birthdays. For the longest time to easily organize these events, you had to let large corporations monitor these special events. These companies snoop on your calendar and use that information to inform their advertising. Proton Calendar is the first fully encrypted calendar app. You can use it to keep track of your plans, appointments, while keeping your data private. If you're a Proton Mail or Proton VPN user with a paid plan, you can start using Proton Calendar Beta right now. Simply log into Proton Mail account, use your Proton Mail version 4.0 Beta, and you'll be able to see Proton Calendar on the sidebar. Now, we'll continue with this in just a moment, but I want to stop here and just point out That ProtonMail er, and the the company behind it is doing a fantastic job in that they offer a little bit of extra nuggets for people like myself and maybe you who can afford to pay for one of their pay. They're paid tiers. If you're one of the people that have a little extra cash and you want to spend that money on securing your privacy, then you're welcome to do so with Proton Mail. And as part of that, they're going to give you access to early features. So when Proton VPN comes out, that gets added as something that you just get access to. And now that Proton Calendar is launching, that's something you just get access to. And I would, if I have no reason to say this, uh, I don't have any inside knowledge, anything like that. But if I was a betting man, I would say before 2020 is out, Proton Drive is going to be a thing, and we are probably going to invite Dr. Andy Yen to come back on the program and talk about Proton Drive. What you're seeing here is nothing short of a systematic elimination of Google services and replacement by freedom respecting alternatives, freedom and privacy respecting alternatives, as it were. Dr. Andy Yen has done a great job. And. Uh, the, this, the article talking about Proton Calendar continues, says our calendar stops private companies from spying on your schedule for users with heightened security needs. Proton Calendar will prevent authorita- authoritarian regimes from seeing who you are, who from seeing who you're meeting with and what you're doing. It, it does this. By keeping the details of your events encrypted while they are stored on our servers, even in the unlikely event of a breach, your agenda will remain secure. And this is something I have encouraged all of you. I probably sound like a broken record. I encourage all of you to pay attention to this when you are signing up for online services. Not only do you need to read the privacy policy, but you also need to think about how encryption keys are stored just because Google tells you. That Gmail is encrypted or that their calendar is encrypted just because WhatsApp tells you that they're using encryption just because Telegram. I'm a huge proponent of Telegram. I live on Telegram and Telegram advertises to its users that it's encrypted. And in fact, it is. There is an encrypted connection from your Telegram client to the Telegram server. But you need to stop and ask the question, who has access to those keys? Because the truth of the matter is Telegram themselves have access to the private keys that allow you to send and receive encrypted data to and from the server. Now, that's not necessarily true uh, with uh, with secret chats or private chats, but. Telegram is being marketed as a wholesale uh, encrypted app, and the truth is it's not end to end encrypted, and you want to see that term end to end encrypted. If you don't see that, then there's a problem. And when you're investigating services that you might want to sign up for, when you're investigating services that you want to do business with, particularly those that you want to spend money with, I highly encourage you to read their privacy policies, understand what you're signing up for, and then look at how they deliver on their promises. One of the things that I respect about ProtonMail and one of the reasons that I trust them is if you go to our show notes at podcast.asknoashow.com, click on episode 161, you will see we have linked to Proton Mail security model, and they outlined at a very high level. This is exactly the steps that we're taking to ensure that your data is private Now I want to be clear about something else too this is something that I see come into the show either via telegram in our in our telegram group, which if you're not a part of the geek lab, you have to be. It's the cool place for all the texts and the geeks to hang out. You can visit it over at telegram.ask join the free chat there, discuss, learn. Uh, and share. One of the things that I see uh, has come up in the Telegram group before, and I've seen it come in over feedback, is this idea that uh, managing encryption can be uh, difficult, and, and what's the easiest way to, to, to deal with, you know, encrypted email, for example, or in this case, encrypted calendaring, and the truth is, if there isn't some sort of barrier to entry, if you don't notice a little bit of friction, then it's probably not working correctly. The reason that AOL Instant Messenger and MSM Messenger and Facebook Messenger and the reason that uh, when iMessage and all of those companies have the ability to sync your messages no matter what device you are using and it just, boom, all of your history just appears there. The reason that's possible is because those messages are not encrypted at rest. The company has access to those messages and may, they may or may not share the private key with anybody else. But if they have access to the private key in order for the servers to do that message synchronization, then you have a problem because that company has access to your private keys. The art of managing keys and the, the requirement to manage your own private keys and make sure that they are downloaded and safe and backed up because if you lose them, you don't have access to your data. If that burden isn't there and you don't feel that burden at some point, then chances are you're doing it wrong. And there are a number of different companies, and we've talked about them in the past. Open Whisper Systems has done this with Signal, a very creative mechanism to allow you to maintain and 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 deal and manage with those keys yourself, but also provide a system in which that you can sign into a new device, and all of your private encrypted messages are still readable by you, the authentic user, but not readable by somebody else. This doesn't require, at least in the case of Open Whisper Systems, for you to trust a third party. You're able to do this. Just on your own, just by uh, using the technology that they've implemented. And it's why Signal comes with a, such a strong recommendation from myself, from Edward Snowden, from Kevin Mitnick, anybody that works in 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 IT security or has paid attention, even a modicum of attention to user and data privacy would recommend that you use Signal. And this is why I also recommend you use ProtonMail. And certainly now that Proton Calendar is a thing, I absolutely recommend that people start using Proton Calendar. Now, I have set up a NextCloud instance and have used that in the past to host my calendaring. I wasn't blown away by it. It's okay. It works. If you're going to maintain it for another reason, like you had an organization, I can kind of see that. If you just like maintaining an own cloud instance because uh, you like playing system administrator at your house, more power to you. I come at it with a slightly different angle, and my angle is this. When I get done maintaining people's email systems and calendaring systems and troubleshooting user accounts and resetting passwords and all of the jazz that I do in my day-to-day work, the last thing I feel like doing when I come home at 6 o'clock at night is maintaining my family's accounts and resetting passwords and setting up sharing things and troubleshooting this, that, or the other and doing server updates and all that, right? I just don't want to do it anymore. I just got done doing that for 12 hours. I'm sick of it. And so what I have found is that there is a... There's a real need for people who work in IT to have some service that they can depend on that would implement services and or features the same way I would implement them if I were setting this up from scratch on my own, but I want them to do it in a freedom and privacy respecting way. These are the kind of things I really appreciate about services and uh, products like ProtonMail, Proton Calendar. I feel very confident when I log into the ProtonMail Mail. Uh, web UI and and being able to actually manage my own private keys and I've done it right I've logged into Proton Mail, I've deleted my private keys I've gone back to my inbox and all of a sudden all of my email is unreadable and that's exactly what I would expect to happen if I lose access to the private keys for any reason I lose access to the data therefore I have my private keys backed up in a very secure location and I'm able to restore but Proton Mail is doing it right. Quote, we believe that everybody has the right to plan dinner with friends without announcing to Google who will attend. For that reason, once Proton Calendar is publicly released, a basic version will be available to all Proton Mail users, including the free users, while paid pre- Proton users will benefit from additional functionality. Again, this is Proton Mail saying, hey, we don't only care about people's privacy if you're writing us a paycheck. We're going to provide a top tier service to do it the right way for the people that are willing and able to pay for it. However, if you're not that kind of person, if you can't afford to pay for all of the all of the whiz bang features, we are going to give you a a limited version, but you're still going. To, it's still going to be enough to protect your privacy, to protect your identity online it's just not going to contain the latest and greatest. And so as new features roll out, they're announced to users like me who pay for the service first, and then after I've had a chance to test it and give my feedback and 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 promote the 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 future development of the product, then it's released to everybody because at the at at their core, they have a fundamental belief in privacy. And you know, privacy dates back to the the, the right to privacy, uh, you know, dates back to discussions in the 1800s even about how important privacy is to 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 individuals and it's why it's it's one of the things that is considered a a universal human right. And again, if if this isn't for you, if Proton Calendar for whatever reason isn't for you, if you say ah, I don't really care who, you know, who sees this stuff, it that doesn't really matter who cares if somebody looks at what I'm doing on the internet, I would invite you to consider the ramifications of what that metadata means we treat metadata separately from regular data as if it's less of a privacy infringement for somebody to know who you're meeting with or when or what times of the day you're tied up. And, um, I can't remember the name. I think the name of the book is the art of invisibility. Um, but it, the, the book does a very good job at describing the reasons of why you should care about privacy. Plenty of books out there, including the ones by Edward stone talk about, uh, What has happened and how privacy is being violated. The Art of Invisibility is one of the few books I've ever read that really dig into the reason as to why we need to care about privacy, even if you don't have anything to hide. So and again, I think that self hosting is a great option if that's the way you want to go. I just personally consider it a major pain. And so uh, when, you know, my calendar goes down and all of a sudden I don't know what meeting I'm supposed to be at or what place of town I'm supposed to be at or what time I'm supposed to be where, uh, that's a major problem, especially if you run a business. And I can't take that risk. Um, I don't want to take that risk. And frankly, I don't have any particular desire to maintain a calendaring system. And so. Uh I'm very, very, very happy to see that Proton Calendar now exists. I highly invite you to check it out. You can you can learn more by going to ProtonMail.com. Again, you can sign up for a free account and uh, in the near future you'll have access to Proton Calendar as well. If you want access immediately, then you're gonna have to sign up for their paid service. Uh, and I, I, I wanna say their I wanna say pricing starts fairly inexpensively. It looks like their their lowest tier is uh, is four euros a month. So check that out. Again, protonmail.com, Proton Calendar, the encrypted calendar solution. Phone lines are open as always. 855-450 Noah. That's 1855-450-6624. Your emails live at AsNOAShow.com. We'll take them read them on the air. Firefox 72 has been released. You can read more at Mozilla.org. We'll have links in the show notes. Firefox 72 one of the newest features that has been honed is their enhanced tracking protection. Now, if you're looking again for data privacy, data security and trying to trying to eliminate your data online and prevent companies from using it to profit, Uh, Firefox is the browser you want to be using and they have all sorts of clever protection built in, including social media trackers, cross site tracking cookies and crypto miners. They also block fingerprinting scripts by default for all users, taking a new bold step in the fight for users privacy. I was reading a little bit about how some of these cross site tracking systems work, and it's very interesting. It essentially generates a pop up with a single pixel and that single pixel Um, is essentially an image and that image then is tied to a tracking site and so what happens is it tracks the ip address of which users rendered that pixel and so the pixel is basically indistinguishable to any person but there is a third-party service that's able to say oh This person visited this site at this particular time. And again, they're extracting that information without your knowledge. And so Firefox is doing their part to try to prevent these kinds of things. It actually goes even further than just the the. The the pixel thing, because what they're doing is trying to build a profile based on what your browser activity looks like. And so things like the settings you have in Firefox, the screen that you use, the resolution you use, the fonts that you have installed, even your choice of a web browser, all of those things can be used to kind of paint a picture of a user and then. Tracking that user around the internet, eventually that user logs into a Facebook account or a Google account, and now we can correlate that user's fingerprint, that anonymous user's fingerprint, with a given identity. And so the more unique add-ons, the more fonts, the more settings you have, the easier you are to find. And companies can use this unique information to create what they're calling a fingerprint. And Firefox's view is that fingerprinting is bad for the web. The practice of fingerprinting allows you to be tracked for months, even after you clear your browser storage, even if you're using private browsing modes. Um, it's, it's, it's a, it's a clear intention that you, or it's a clear indication that you did not want to be tracked. And despite you sending that message very clearly and concisely by using a a private tab, these companies continue to do just that. They continue to track your, your web movements. And obviously we've talked at, at, at length about using VPNs and using Tor and these kinds of things to try and get around it. But the reality is for a lot of people, it's just not practical. It's not practical to every time they want to browse the internet to sign up and pay for a VPN service and deal with a slightly bottled net connection. It's not possible for people to spin up Tor inside of a business meeting because they want to Google something or DuckDuckGo something. We have to have reasonable controls in place in modern browsers. And this is what Firefox is trying to do because despite a near complete agreement between the standard body and browser vendors that fingerprinting is harmful, its use on the web is increasing over the past decade. And so Firefox is... Trying to do something about that. And so they have a whole new list of features for their enhanced tracking protection. That's essentially the little blue shield that you're now seeing in Firefox. Uh, it's doing all of this stuff behind the curtains, behind the scenes, nothing you necessarily have to pay attention to or notice. Um, But if you actually dig into it, you can click on that little blue shield and you'll be able to see what exactly it is Firefox is doing. And you can make exemptions because as you might imagine, anytime you go through and start stripping out certain functionality out of sites in in an effort to to protect privacy, sometimes you can strip away some necessary functionality of that site. And uh, and so a site won't load properly or look quite polished enough. And so they include that little blue shield to to change that the other thing that firefox has done that i'm really happy about firefox has replaced that annoying notification thing if you've ever if you've used firefox at all in the last year unless you're living under a rock every couple sites you visit it says would you like to allow the site to, to send you notifications and the first couple times i didn't really mind it was fine i thought all right we'll give it a shot let's see what happens sure send me some notifications who cares well how bad could it be in my browser and then this annoying little window pops up and it starts sending me updates from new sites that I have no interest in whatsoever. I visited it, you know, weeks ago, and even when I'm not on that site, it's still sending me notifications. It's the most infuriating thing ever. Well, they've replaced that with a more delightful experience, as Firefox put it. The pop-ups are no longer interrupt your browsing. Instead, there's a small little speech bubble that will appear in the address bar when you interact with the site. They've also introduced a picture-in-picture video, so... You can now select from the little blue icon uh, at the right edge of a video, and it'll open up a open up a pop up floating window that you can watch while you're continuing to work in other tabs and apps. Absolutely fantastic for multitasking, particularly people like me who choose to open up a video, have it streaming in the background, so that I can uh, so I can continue to work but get some entertainment. Let's go to the phones. Eight fifty five four fifty. No, it's 1-855-450-6624. You are on the air. Good evening. You're on Astowa.
2: Good evening, good night. Hi, this is David from Berlin, Germany. Um, if we have time at the end, remind me, please, uh, to talk about device fingerprinting and why, that's a, why that coin has another side. You bet. But first, um, I have a question um, about, um, I'd say, virtualization. Um, there will be some caveats. So if it takes up too much of time to show, just cut me off but it might be interesting for geeks who are not extreme data hoarders um, or people who are carbon-conscious or who, like me, live in Germany with um, electricity prices as high as here. Okay. So um, since my last call, a year ago or so, um, I had a very rapid increase in the number of family members and thus the number of photos and videos taken. So I am planning to move them away from my Synology box um, and build a ZFS based NAS. And I'm currently testing at a free NAS um, with actual Raspberry Pi as a ZFS replica target. Um, on the other hand, uh, I am also a PFSense user for <laughs> actually blocking tracking, um, speaking of which, um, ads, um, and as VPN server. But um, the amount of hardware space I have in my household is limited. And also every watt um, used. And the setup costs me about $3 a year. So virtualization comes into mind, um, mm-hmm. especially because I, have, uh, I want to have print servers, compile servers, etc. So I tried the VMs on the Freenas, but the VMs on Freenas with Beehive are fairly suboptimal. Um, especially when it comes to PCI pass through, uh, something that actually Wendell from Level 1 Text alluded to recently. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm either looking for a PF Sense alternative based on Linux. I'm not sure if anything comes to mind.
1: Well, the, the, when you say a PF Sense alter- alternative, uh, obviously OpenSense uh, comes to mind. As a you know, an open source alternative uh-huh. to pfSense, but I guess could you uh, could we back up? Could you explain what problems you're having with pfSense?
2: I don't have any problems for, uh, with pfSense. The virtualization, so I'm running currently my test setup is I'm running a virtual pfSense in a FreeBSD box. Okay. But the PCI pass through is is really not that sophisticated as on Linux.
1: Gotcha. Well, let's start with this then. All right. So I agree with your choice wholeheartedly to run FreeNAS. I think that's probably the best storage system out there, and one of the frustrations. Much as I like Synology for my NVR, uh, using it as a storage system would make me a little nervous because their default is ButterFS, and then their backup is X4. Um, and while X4 is a great file system, and I run it on my laptop, and I've had no problems, um, it's not. It doesn't. It's not. It's not even in the same category as ZFS, right? So. File system storage wise, I, I agree with FreeNAS. As far as a hypervisor, and and full disclosure here, I've not used FreeNAS as a hypervisor, so I can't comment on its on its efficacy or inefficacy. But but what I can tell you is that I have had excellent luck um, with libvirt D, and not only have I had excellent luck with libvirt D, I've had excellent luck uh, virtualizing pfSense inside of. Libvirt. D. The nice thing about Libvirt is you don't necessarily have to do PCI pass-through. You can create two bridges. You can create one bridge for the standard VM bridge that all of the VMs will come onto the LAN and and act accordingly. And then you can take two other NICs and one can be one can be uh, there can be a bridge a direct bridge to for the WAN interface of pfSense and the other one can be a direct bridge for the LAN interface of pfSense. Now obviously you can get into uh, more advanced virtual switching and stuff like that, but if you have a you know a, a Dell R420 or basically any server hardware, most of them have four NICs at the back. Um, we assign one to the bridge for the VM hypervisor, we assign one for the WAN and one for the LAN, and we bring them all out. And by the time we're done with it. In about 25 minutes, you have a hypervisor that's running sent to us on the base. Sense is virtualized as the first VM. It has two of those network interfaces passed through them. And at the back, we simply label them and you get the physical output of what it would be as if you bought an enterprise grade router and a, and a virtual server. Um, and so you'd be able to do all of those things. The only thing you wouldn't be able to do in that in that situation, you would not obviously be able to virtualize FreeNAS because FreeNAS needs direct access to the disks in order for ZFS to do its thing. If you try and virtualize FreeNAS, it screws up ZFS, and then, then you, it's not worth doing, really. Um, so uh, what, what I would tell wouldn't, you is... Wouldn't that
2: be solved? Say again. Um, so wouldn't that be solved by uh, a direct pass-through or? Uh, the disks. Yes, you another can do- question, and the other question is if you, uh, yeah, there's a bit of delay. So um, the difference, uh, I'm not that deep into virtualization, but the isn't there a difference between the uh, bridging and the direct PCI thread through? And with the bridging, I would potentially open up um, security vulnerabilities on the um, host OS. Um, wouldn't the host OS be accessible um, to the internet if? if it would to host the pf sense
1: no well the, no the no the host os wouldn't be so the way the bridge works is this in, in in the the host is actually telling is actually saying okay i have access to all four of these nics and you want one of them I will just take one of these NICs, and the, the the host OS doesn't have an IP address or any IP connectivity to, let's let's say, NIC 3 and 4. Let's say those are the ones we designate for PFSense. So the host operating system doesn't have an IP address. It has n- nothing really to do with them. It's simply just passing whatever traffic comes from uh, the hypervisor down to those individual interfaces. And so when you when when pfsense boots up it, it's going to see those two interfaces and or the bridge actually really for those two interfaces and they will talk directly to the the copper of the uh, of of that interface so you're not you're not uh, you're not exposing the the host operating system any more than you would be exposing the host operating system to network traffic of a of any other VM that that's running in the hypervisor, right? I mean, not that I I I I wouldn't go so far as to say that there are no exploits in libvirt, no exploits in KVM that could possibly that could possibly bite you, but none none any more on pfSense than you would on any other VM that's using a bridge, right? That's we're trusting the hypervisor to do its job properly. If it made you nervous and you wanted to. Pass through most of the NICs that are on servers are not a single PCI device, so you should be able to use PCI pass through uh, to 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 get those to be recognized by PFsense, or you can actually buy on Amazon for like twenty bucks. They have dual uh, dual gigabit NIC uh, PCI card, so it's a single PCI card, but it actually has two network interfaces on it. And I'll have one for you in the show notes. But if you ha- if you already have a machine, you could pass that through as PCI, and then you'd have your WAN and LAN interface on PFsense.
2: Yeah, I I, I do have a, a quad Intel NIC, and I would recommend to anyone to to buy some uh, because they are some. Do- Okay. okay so um you want the other side of that uh, tracking coin or do you want some uh personal experience on the dsm personality because um i actually can recommend it for some people as a storage device okay um, but not for everyone
1: well let's start let, let's start with the other so, side of the tracking coin. I'd be interested in hearing that for sure
2: okay so yeah i do use psn to to block tracking but um, device fingerprinting is an interesting um, technology when it comes in the retail industry to prevent fraud. So if, if, if you're a big retail company and you have a lot of customers, uh, you tend to trust those ones more who have a, a proven track record that they pay, pay their bills or, or whatever uh, good they're purchased um, versus fraudsters who probably would try to virtualize, etc., um a new device uh every so often so yeah that's that's just one argument um, okay why you would want to have someone uh, with an established track record um obviously we don't want the monetization on your information so right yeah, I, I give that to you
1: okay fair enough and you said you had one more thing to add
2: uh, no, um, the, it, that was about um, feedback on the disk uh, station manager on Synology. Oh,
1: yeah, so, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, so I've what's your experience been with that?
2: Five years, yeah, yeah. Um, so I do agree with you on um, uh, some of the things um, from a few uh, shows previously, uh, I love the UI. Um, the apps are reasonably good. Um, I do like that it has a, a virus scanner basically built in as, a, as, as, a, as an app or a plugin, whatever you call it. Um, I do like the fact that they have a, a dev-based um, sync uh, client, although it's a bit slow. Um, but there are some um, caveats. So the backups are fairly slow as well, and that. Probably comes down to the fact that um, the Soho uh, category DSMs, I'm um, sorry, the Synology boxes run non-Intel or non-x86 um, um, uh, CPUs. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing is, if you are a geek and you want to run NFS, the DSM doesn't let you specify the user ID of the users you create. Interesting. So you're gonna run into trouble.
1: How are you how are that's you backing up the Synology?
2: Um so currently that's only local, um with uh, just uh, a USB drive. Gotcha. And it takes I'm I'm not even using, using the file based one, I'm using the Synology based one because I don't know why. I gotcha. And by the way Butterf has is not the default because I think it's only the default for the ones with the x86 hardware
1: mm, yeah that could be I've uh, the the ones I have bought and one are not yeah the ones I have bought are are probably the x86 ones because they're they're a little beefier because I'm using them as nvrs yeah. uh, and the default there is definitely butter but anyway I I really appreciate the uh, I really appreciate the input and the feedback and did I answer your question uh, ac- uh um did I answer your question
2: yeah I think I'm gonna I'm gonna uh do it uh try. All right. Uh with LibBird and KVM.
1: Good deal. Hey, give me a call back, let me know how it goes. I'd appreciate it. And thanks for the call. Eight fifty five four fifty Noah it's eight five five four five zero six six two four. Peter, London, you're on Ask Noah. Good evening.
3: Hello, Noah. It's good to dis- a long time since so I've spoken to you. It has. How have you been, sir? Um I'm fine. I'm fine. You remember me. I'm very flattered. It was it was episode 18, I think. Yeah, I think we named the episode uh, after you. <laughs> that was very good, yeah. I like that. Um, I've been listening a lot to what you've been saying about IoT devices um, in the last uh, few months uh, in lots of different places all over YouTube and so on. And uh, I think I've sort of come to the conclusion that you've got a very uh, similar opinion of IoT devices to me.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, you remember the uh, uh, the article that, uh, or the piece of news that came out not so long ago, where they hacked an Alexa with a laser beam. Mm-hmm. You remember that? Yes. Yeah. Um, how sensitive do these uh, these microphones built into these devices have to be? If you're amplitude modulating a laser beam, and it can translate a mechanical movement to a thin sliver of metal inside a microphone that's probably got a very sensitive amplification circuit behind it, Mm -hmm. why did they choose the microphone to be so damn sensitive? I, 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 I would get... Sorry, go ahead. Well, no, I mean, I, I'm asking myself this question because I'm, I'm beginning to think maybe it was either done because it was a component that was readily available, cheap to buy, and it didn't check the specs. The specs may be, you know, the the, the, the amplification specs on one of these devices must be off the charts because the amount of mechanical movement that you you transfer to... A small sliver of metal, which is a membrane, mm-hmm. that then creates a modulation in the pickup circuit. It, it must be amazingly small, because you're talking about the pressure of light waves sure. on a laser beam. So why do, why would they why would they actually use a device that's that sensitive? Well, in, uh, in an I... IoT device that's that's going to be distributed to thousands of families across the the world let alone your country
1: well i think so there's a there are a couple things there right i think the first thing if you're trying to build a smart device that responds to voice obviously you need that device to be as accurate as possible and in order to be as accurate as possible uh-huh. you want to capture as much sound as humanly possible and then we rely and then once we have the sound then we can rely on processes and algorithms to try to strip out what we want and and make it more accurate the problem is the microphone can't hear you over ambient noise it doesn't matter how good the, 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 the processing is and how good the protocols are and how good the algorithms are we're not going to get anywhere so. The I think that's part of it, but the other part is this: Apple, the 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 Apple. As much as I don't like the the Apple HomePod, I have to admit that the 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 microphones in that thing are incredible. You can have the music cranked all the way up in an entirely different room, and in a normal voice, say, you know, do X Y Z, and this thing will hear you. Right now, Apple undoubtedly spent my God. Well, Apple undoubtedly spent untold amounts of money to to probably develop those microphones and get them to work that way right but you know it's only a matter of time before Mm -hmm. amazon bites onto this and google bites onto this and microsoft bites onto this and eventually we are going to put these listening devices with these insanely sensitive microphones all around us. And at the same in, in the exact same way Peter that people carry around tracking devices in their pockets that they don't call tracking devices they call them smartphones, we are going yeah. to start putting spying yeah. and listening devices into our house that we're not going to call spying and listening devices, we're going to call them personal digital assistants.
3: I <laughs> I can't help asking the question now. I'm not asking it to you so you don't have to answer it, but I'm asking myself this question. Did they do it on purpose?
1: Yes. I think they did. I I think that (laughs) – I don't think that Amazon – to be fair, I don't think that there's anybody sitting in Amazon Labs or Google Labs that has any nefarious purpose that that sits there and says, how can we spy on people, right? I do think that there's an incredible amount of money and engineering that goes into how can we make sure that we capture audio in the best possible way and how can we make speech recognition more accurate and in doing so, whether they intended to or not – inadvertently open themselves up to the point where everything that is spoken in 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 the close vicinity to one of these devices is then turned into text cataloged logged data mined and then sent like their stories mm-hmm. just came out I think it was last year earlier just end of last year story came out about Amazon employees sitting inside of a data center with headsets on listening to people through their alexas I mean this is something that happens I heard that. Yeah, so I think they did it intentionally. I don't. Again, I don't think. I don't think any of these things start out as nefarious things. I just think they turn that way when somebody realizes the potential power that they that they that they wield.
3: Mm. This is bordering. I mean, that kind of sensitivity is bordering on LIGO's sensitivity. Mm -hmm. Are you familiar with LIGO? Very,
1: yeah, very, very, very very briefly. We use it for tracking speed here in the U.S.
3: Right. But they're using it to detect gravitational waves mm-hmm. and it's almost at that kind of sensitivity that this kind of this kind of microphone that they're using in iot devices i mean it, it, it's starting to frighten me now sure it really is. yeah oh
1: my, myself as well yeah it, it's absolutely terrifying and i I, <laughs> I i appreciate you joining us all the way from london
3: well I, it's a pleasure to be here and I, I always tune in i always listen to everything that you've done And I'm familiar now with the DLN network. Yes. Uh, Very quickly, do you want me to go over some of the uh, security things that I've I've implemented in Firefox? I can just give you a quick rundown on good plugins. Please. Yeah. Okay. There's a canvas blocker. Okay. uh, Clear clear URLs. Cookie auto-delete. And, of course, you block origin
1: I'm gonna to add to that I'm gonna to add to that HTTPS everywhere and no script uh, those, yeah, are, those, those are those uh, those are everything you said I agree with I just I would I would add those I would uh, add those two on to the end as well if you're looking for for extensions to kind of keep you private on the internet I would also add to that HTTP everywhere or HTTPS everywhere and uh, and no script.
3: yeah I do have that but I don't use no script because it tends to um, disable a lot of functionality on yes. pages. Yes. So i tend to avoid that. Yep. But if, if you want to cut out JavaScript, you can do that in U-block Origin anyway. Very cool. Noah, thank you very much.
1: Yeah, I appreciate the time. Thanks for we joining really
3: us. really enjoy speaking to you.
1: Yeah, you too, sir. Thank have have a great much. night. 855-450-NOAH. It's 855-450-6624. The email, live at AskNOAHshow.com. Joel, Georgia, you're on Ask NOAH. Good evening.
0: How's it going, Noah? Hey, pretty good. Yeah, and uh, happy New Year uh, to you, by the way.
1: Same, my friend.
0: And, and also, uh, before I get into my question, how much did the headlines about CES this week uh, made you barf? What's uh, <laughs> going on with the discussion?
1: Uh, here's the thing about CES. I've always kind of taken it as as it, with with a grain of salt um, to 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 begin with, because CES is one of those things where that's where all the mainstream text goes, and I'm I'm a little bit more niche to begin with, but uh and that's and here's the thing too the uh the 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 uh the samsung's announcement of basically their rip off of apple i d uh that was pretty cool i don't know if you saw the keynote
0: uh i saw the abbreviated version and that robot assistant was a little
1: uh yeah. It's uh, if 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 you want a ball of hair, go check out uh, go check out CS. The nice thing is that at least they publish a lot of the videos uh, of the uh, of the talks and stuff that that are there, and then you get all these tech journalists that go and cover all the things. So if you go on YouTube, you can actually see some of the new products, many of which will never actually make it to market. Um, but uh, it' you know, these neat conference anyway. How can I help you tonight?
0: Yeah, so uh, I I just became a proud owner of a ThinkPad E-Series laptop. The reason why I chose the E-Series was because of it had an extra drive bay, and that's where I am currently using my Linux distributions. I'm still keeping the main drive in case because I have some assignments that require Microsoft software. uh, Okay. And... uh, and uh, so uh, I just want to know if you have any optimizations specifically because this is the one with the uh, Ryzen hardware. If you know of any optimizations in Ubuntu specifically that could make it better for both. Think I'm not sure if the E-Series is compatible with some of the software you've mentioned in the past, but uh, maybe maybe some optimizations for Ryzen to make it a lot more performant, especially in uh, some games. I I do play a little bit of a uh, few games I've got into... Uh, into uh, in, injustice, gods among us, and uh, I did a little Rocket League, some stuff like that.
1: Hmm. Ferronics actually did. I'll okay. uh, uh, we'll see if I can have it. Uh, fine. Yeah, here it is. I'll uh, I'll put this in the show notes for you. Ferronics actually did a a write up on this. Um, called uh, The Fastest Linux Distribution for Ryzen, a 10-way Linux OS comparison on Ryzen 7 and Threadripper. And essentially, they went through and installed various different Linux distributions and, and tried tweaking them in various different ways and then just said, okay, here is here is kind of what we found. And then they they detailed their choices. As you might imagine, there's not one distribution that, oh, this is the distribution you should use with Ryzen. Um, the, the TLDR of the article was that all Linux distributions tend to work fairly well with Ryzen because all most of the drivers, if not all of the drivers, are being developed and, and embedded right into the kernel. And so that's why when you purchase a, a Ryzen graphics card, for example, you don't have to go to the Ryzen site and download separate code and compile it and and do all that stuff. Even uh, like NVIDIA, you don't have to add a PPA and, 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 and download the driver. You just plug the graphics card and boot the computer up. It's going to work right out of the box. And uh, DOS Geek actually was the one that recommended Ryzen to me and got me switched over. So now my primary machine, my primary workstation at home is running Ryzen. And I've had zero issues with it, zero. And that is in stark contrast to my NVIDIA card that I had that it would do this weird thing where all the windows would kind of lock up and like all the title bars would change. And so I I would go to open a window and a different window would pop up because the title bar was frozen. Just weird stuff like that. Haven't had any of that since I switched to Ryzen.
0: Mm, yeah, and also, uh, and also, I've sort of, sort of mitigated myself with the, uh, for some reason, some Flash players still have the, uh, have the little bit of a, it's like a screen sharing effect mm-hmm. on occasion. I notice this uh, most often with Amazon Prime and and uh, and also another site that I subscribe to, uh, so I believe for political affiliation, but uh, DailyWire.com, that mm-hmm. their videos stuff has a little bit of um. Has a little bit of us that uh, fringe element on the top. It's like I can notice it. It's like a little annoying. So I'm not sure where else I would go for that. How to fix that?
1: Sure. Uh, I, I I can't speak. I can't speak to. Uh, I can't speak on on what your specific issue is. I will tell you that I visit a lot of those same sites and I've had absolutely no issues whatsoever uh, with my Ryzen system. None whatsoever. I don't know if you've seen that on your new ThinkPad.
0: Uh, I, I saw that on I saw that as I'm currently using Ubuntu Mate, and I sort of. I even actually installed the Compton, Compton window manager type mm-hmm. thing as well to get it up, to try to get it up. It might have improved a little bit, but I do. There might be some relatively small, little sweep pattern when you put the video in full screen, and it. Mm. It's a little annoying it's, well, one the, it's one of those elements here's
1: the, here's the thing yeah. part of that part of that might be the fact that I mean if you have I, the e series is still integrated graphics yes.
0: Yes, I think so, yeah, it's right, uh, Radeon, yeah, Radeon so, 8. So, I mean, I,
1: I, I, I gather, I, yeah. there's going to be tiny little rough edges around the fact that the graphics processor just isn't as powerful as it would be if you were using, you know, a, a full-on desktop system. You know, it's usable, but just like when you play a game, there's there's a limit to what the settings are going to be. So, I mean, I'm not going to... I wouldn't go as far as to say it's going to be absolutely problem-free 100% because there's limitations of the hardware, but as far as the, the you know, yeah, render-
0: the games I've had...
1: Have been yeah, but the
0: games are like mostly flawless, but I, I just don't I'm not sure. Maybe I'll have to tweak a little few more settings in the browser possibly.
1: Hmm. Could be. I will I'll link that article from Pharonix on Ryzen optimizations for, for Linux, and you can check that out in the show notes of podcast.com. Really appreciate it, Noah, and
0: hope you have a good rest of your night.
1: You too. Thanks for the call. I really appreciate it. 855 450 No, it's eight five five four five zero six six two four. The email live at AS Show. .com. Back to the phones, Davin from New York. Hey, Davin, welcome into the program.
4: Hi, how are you, and happy GNU year?
1: <laughs> happy GNU year to you <laughs> as well.
4: I appreciate it. Um, I'll keep the, I'm going to minimize the questions I have for you just because I know the show is about to end. Oh, I oh we got 10 minutes left. For the rest of the podcast. Sure. Um, all right, so first question was uh, what are your five most useful commands, excluding, like, the basics, like ls, cat, because um, mine is a propus, because mm-hmm. I feel like that's convenient for me, but I want to add a little bit to that. So what would you say are your five most handy commands.
1: My five most handy commands. So I tell you this right off the bat. Uh, screen is completely underutilized by most people. If you're not yep. familiar with screen, it allows you to run I commands agree. in the background. You can disconnect from that session, let that command continue to run, and then resume it when you get back. Mm-hmm. So screen is one of the one of the ones I don't see. I see people finding all sorts of ways to get around it and and when they should just be using screen. Other thing that I think people don't use, uh, is underutilized that I think is a really great command is the double bang. Let's say you type via, let's Say you type a command that needed elevated privileges and the command fails because you don't have elevated privileges and you need to go and run that command as sudo. Well, running that command, if you just type sudo space and then Two exclamation marks. Uh, It will, mm -hmm. yep, it will add sudo back to the original command that you just entered. And so, particularly if it's, if it's, Mm -hmm. if it's very long, it will just repeat that command with elevated privileges. You know, off the top Mm -hmm. of my head, those are the two that I, I see most often where I go, Oh, that would have been an easier way to do that. A couple other ones that come to mind. History Mm -hmm. is a great one. If you typed a command a week ago and got something to work and couldn't quite figure out what, what went wrong, you can go back and you type history and go back and look. And see uh, what it was that you had entered, um, but I, 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 other other than those three, I guess I can't think of anything that would be you know out of the ordinary, crazy. Like oh, that's that's really cool. I I learned something. N- Netstat is another one that I use uh, pretty much on a yeah. daily basis that I I don't see a lot of other people using on a daily basis. It, Netstat uh, will allow you to look at what ports the computer is listening to which can be very useful if you're running a web server you want to see port 80 being listened to if you're running plex you want to see whatever it is 32 4, 800 or whatever uh, you want to see that port open so using netstat is a great way to, to look at that um yeah does that kind of answer your question
4: uh yeah i just had i guess one more Well, this is actually a comment okay um i was listening to the destination linux podcast today at work mm-hmm. this is from last week i believe uh so you guys were talking about Proton Mail and when you forget the password. Yes. Um, I had actually forgotten my password a couple weeks ago. So basically, I had I had used um, KeyPass and I had stored my Proton VPN and Proton Mail uh, password and username in there. Mm-hmm. I ended up losing. I forgot my password to KeyPass. So I was, I was beyond screwed. Yeah. So I had reached out through customer service to, to Proton Mail. Mm-hmm. I was like, "Hey, I forgot my password. Is there anything I can do?" And one of the some of the questions they had asked me because I was actually able to recover that account. I wasn't mm-hmm. sure if that's was something that you had mentioned prior in the Destination Linux podcast episode. I wasn't sure if you were saying that well, if you forget your password, that's it, you're screwed. I was actually able, to yeah. You need you to help the the pa- you
1: to yeah. So the way that works is this: the password isn't actually decrypting anything. The password, well, that's not entirely yeah. true. The password is what secures your private keys. The private keys are what are actually used to decrypt the, the email. So. What yeah. I was saying in Destination Linux was that if you lose access to the private keys for any reason, you lose access to read the mail. So, for example, if you logged into Proton Mail, you yeah. deleted the private key, you then you would not be able to access your email. But in your case, the, the 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 key itself was just fine. Your access to the private key was lost when you locked yourself out of a pa- when you lost your password. So, what they were able to do yeah, is I
4: can't look at any of my previous emails.
1: Well, then, okay, so if you can't look at any of your previous emails, then you did cycle the key mm-hmm. right. So and the, and, the, and that's what you want to happen. And again, this is kind of what I was talking about earlier in the episode when I said, if you don't feel some rub of key management, you're not doing it right, right? So when you reset your password on Proton Mail, what's happening is the password that's used to secure the private key. You've lost access now to the private key because you've lost access to decrypt it. So in my case, what I would have done, I back up the private keys in Proton Mail, and by the way, you probably should too going forward. Backed up those private keys, so I could do a password reset on Proton Mail. And yes, I would it would it would cycle my private keys, it would generate new ones and destroy my old ones because i can't prove that i have them but because i have them backed up on my computer in a secure location i can re-import those private keys and all of a sudden i would have access to those emails again
3: uh, okay
1: yeah and, and proton mail gives you the um, option to do that right inside of the control
4: panel i did not know that oh well, i'll do that going forward now mm-hmm. i did not know that thank you yeah you bet um yeah. i'll make a no question just because i may there's probably other people uh behind me or throughout the show um the ip addresses in caribbean because i'm going to the caribbean uh in a couple months so there's my cousins okay i want to do a little bit of tinkering and set up like the pie hole
0: Mm. i was wondering
4: is is the ip address similar to how it would be here in the states or is it a different uh, layout
1: well how do you mean different layout
4: i mean like is it going to be like 192.168 or is like if i go to a different country is the ip address um the the is this going to be like 192 that 168 or am I going to have to is going to be completely different the type of numbering system like numeric system
1: well so i can, you know, i mean ip address ipv4 is a, is a standard right so it doesn't matter what part of the world you're you're in the, uh, the IPv4 addresses are, are 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 standard now. As to exactly okay. which IP scheme is being used, like, I'll, just not that you asked for this, but I'll 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 give it to you anyway. The, the classful subnetting is 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 a thing of the past. Like we don't do that anymore. If you're yeah. setting up an IP address, probably should just start with ten because. 10 and then from that you decide where you want the slash to be so for example if you're doing a slash 24 fairly common for small home small office uh, mm-hmm. that's the the three first octets are reserved for the network the last octet is reserved for hosts if you did a slash 16 then the last two octets are reserved for hosts and so on and so forth. Um, so it, it, when you, when you get to the Caribbean, no matter what part of the world you're in, whatever the IP address scheme is, you can absolutely get a pie hole and, 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 and set it up with, you know, an IP address and it'll be exactly the same as you set it up in the States for sure. But which private IP scheme that particular household chose to use may or may not be different, but that's not a function of them living in a different part of the world. It's a function of them typing different numbers into the, the router when they set it up.
4: Okay. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Um, uh, well, have a good day and I hope you bought a brand new stool and <laughs>
1: <laughs> that, listen, that joke is not going to make it out of this show. I'm going to shut that down. hard. Let me just tell you that right now. <laughs> Thanks for the call, man. I appreciate it. 855-450. No, it's 855-450-6624. Of course, the email live at asknoahshow.com. Make your voice heard, become a part of the program. Uh, Wayne writes in and says, Hi, Noah. Thanks so much for an enjoyable show and all you do. I've been enjoying the segments on IP cameras at the moment. I have learned a few well-timed key points as we are in the process of planning an upgrade of 500 cameras on a network. I was listening to your last episode June 2nd and during my smoky commute when you discussed an email from a listener who's chosen to use the wise camera, but only on a public space on what should be a private land. A lot of listeners might not have the knowledge about VLANing, and it might be worth mentioning that they could enable the guest Wi-Fi network option on their modems and routers for that camera to do that. This option is readily available on most domestic routers. It's easy to use and offers some limited segregation. And so, of course, what he's talking about here is if you log in, if you've seen on Linksys, or TP Link, a lot of times they'll have enable guest access. And what the guest access does is it will allow the user to send traffic to the default gateway and nowhere else on the network. And of course, that's useful if your friend wants to get on Wi Fi. He doesn't need access to your WISE camera, for example. Uh, he just needs access to. The, the internet, then then turning on that guest access will allow that. And, and so what Wayne is suggesting here is that perhaps if you're interested in using a WISE camera, you could put it on a internet only LAN that will go out to the internet. Of course, it's a fantastic suggestion, not something I had originally thought of, but it, it is something I have in my house for quote unquote internet of things. So the kids' tablets and stuff like that. I don't want them on the real network because I can't really control them. So they're on a separate WAN connection that just goes to the internet. Fantastic suggestion. Thanks for writing in. Michael M writes in and says, hi, I heard you mention VPNs and that you've done a show on them. So I just listened to your show for the first time. Thanks for helping people out. My question is this. What about NordVPN? I bought a three year contract a few months ago and got three months for free. Then it came out that they'd been hacked and hadn't let people know, but it hadn't been comprom- but it hadn't compromised user connections. I know it's common to find login credentials for people who reuse passwords, but what about somebody who has almost three years left on something they've paid good money for? I wouldn't recommend them because they didn't disclose this hack in a timely manner. But is there any reason I should just take a loss on the money I already paid out? Reusing passwords is a horrible practice, and I can't fault the company for what users do. But should I jump on the ship or just get my money's worth and then change? Thanks. So here's the way I would look at that situation. I agree with you. Completely unethical for them not to tell you that they've suffered a breach and that potentially your account information is compromised. Completely agree. And if we were talking about any other service, I would tell you to jump ship. You said if you wrote in and asked me about your email provider, I would say screw it, you can't trust them anymore. Slightly different situation when it comes to VPNs because consider this: the entire reason you have a VPN service to begin with is to protect your 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 privacy, to stay anonymous. And so if I had my choice, if it wouldn't totally hose the company, I would publish my VPN username and password on every site known to man. And I would let everybody use it because then if the FBI or whoever else comes to my doorstep and says, hey, such and such was found uh, and using this account, I would go, "Uh uh-huh. And how many hundreds of thousands or millions of people have that account? I have no idea who it was. If it was anything else, I might tell you to stay away. The fact that it's VPN leads me to to suggest to you finish out your three-year contract. If you don't want to give that particular company any more money because you feel like they've wronged you, then make a change. And if you're going to make a change, I highly recommend checking out Proton. They're doing a fantastic job, and they have a VPN service. You can trust them to take your money. And if they ever did suffer a breach, not only would it probably not affect you, they definitely let you know. Hey, did you know you can find more information of the Ask Noah Show? There are so many articles we didn't get to tonight, but they're all available at podcast.asknoahshow.com. You can stay up to date on the latest by following us on Twitter at Ask Noah Show. The Ask Noah Show will continue next Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central, right here at asknoahshow.com. We'll see you next week. Have a great week, and uh, check out ProtonMail.